0: Uh, Jeremiah 31 and uh, let's see starting at verse 31 and we'll go to verse 34 Jeremiah 31 31 easy to remember of course uh, providentially we have uh, uh, a quick reference in our heads to the new covenant in the, as it's discussed in the Old Testament by uh, remembering Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. this passage in this prophet we ask you lord to please help us uh, by your spirit to better understand uh, the new covenant that you have made uh, to understand its nature and to understand how it applies both to old testament saints and to us and we pray these things in christ's name amen okay so uh, i will be doing a little bit of reading today uh, ask questions anytime you have them but uh, the notes that I prepared have a good deal of uh, my reading. So bear with me. Uh, while the prophet Jeremiah discussed the then coming new covenant in terms of its being made between Yahweh, the Lord, and, quote, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in chapter 131 of, his, of this book, Jeremiah then goes on to describe the divine promises connected with the new covenant in this manner, in verses 33 to 34. I will put my laws within them, and I will write them, write it on their hearts, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Although the prophet predicts that this new covenant will be with the houses of Israel and Judah, we are told by our Lord and by the apostles that this new covenant is oriented primarily toward believing Gentiles. For instance, the apostle Paul who identifies himself at Romans eleven thirteen as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul also describes himself at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 as a minister of the new covenant. The new covenant of Jeremiah appears to have reference to the houses of Israel and Judah, but in actuality, as it works out in time, has reference in the main, as far as numbers go, to Gentiles. In the following chapter, in chapter 32, uh, verses 37 to 41. You can turn there if you like. Verses 37 to 41 of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 32. Yahweh expands upon his description of this coming new covenant. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. In both of these passages, th- Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, the new covenant is being displayed in terms that indicate a return to the land and to divine favor. And that this shall be accompanied by spiritual regeneration, with all this heart language, and Yahweh's forgiveness of their iniquities. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Let's go to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll start at verse... 6. So Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenants, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the greatest of them to the, uh, least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so it was good to start at verse 6 of this passage because we can see here that it's believers in Jesus Christ for whom this new covenant that he, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31. Uh, We started with Jeremiah 31. Glad you made it here safely. Glad I made it here safely. Um, Where Jeremiah talks about the coming new covenant, and then we are here now in the New Testament, where that same passage is quoted from Jeremiah, discuss the new covenant um, and applying it to Christians. And so, as a reminder for everybody, the point being that in the Old Testament, it's discussed the new coming new covenant is discussed as being uh, pertinent pertinent to the houses of Israel and Judah. And here we see Christians, members of the church, albeit Hebrews, members of the church, believers in Jesus Christ. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews, Christians, is saying that the new covenant applies to them. So that's the point we'll be focusing on here Uh, for today's lesson. The relevance of the new covenant, its meaning, to whom it applies. All right. Now, there is no other new covenant Jeremiah could be referring to than the very covenant that the New Testament writers and Jesus discuss as being the one that is in fact fulfilled primarily by Gentile believers. Therefore, when the prophets looked forward, They saw the new covenant, the coming new covenant, as being with Israel and foresaw their return to the land and to favor as something physical and very literal. Yet in the New Testament we learn that in the covenant in Christ's blood there was involved a spiritual and not a national or ethnic Israel. That is a spiritual fulfillment of these promises, or a literal fulfillment of those promises of an unexpected kind. And it would not involve, not be focused upon a national or ethnic Israel. But it would in fact apply to those whom the New Testament refers to as the sons of Abraham. To whom does the New Testament apply this term? Sons of Abraham, but Christians. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was an accomplishment. It wasn't completely hidden that this would be the case. This was an accomplishment of God's promise to the patriarch, Abraham, of a spiritual progeny without number, in whom the Gentiles would be blessed. That is in his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Hebrew prophets, in seeing as they did, all things in reference to Israel and Judah, simply spoke in terms found within the limitations of their spiritual vocabulary. I'll stop and make that point clear. Israel, Israelite prophets, they understood God's people to be none other than Israel and Judah. So when they're receiving these prophecies and writing them down, they're doing so in the context where God's people are only Israel and Judah. So looking at the fulfillment of these prophecies from their place in redemptive history, they would understand that God's covenant people always meant Israel and Judah. That's the way it was in their day. That was their spiritual spiritual vocabulary, as it were. They understood all of God's covenant relations as being, as they were at that time, restricted to the houses of Israel and Judah. If you wanted to become attached to God back then, you had to become attached to Israel and Judah by marriage or by confession with circumcision. but it would devolve to the the apostles in the New Testament to reveal that such prophetic language regarding Israel God's wayward son returning to his land would actually find fulfillment in Gentiles returning to their long estranged God. So it makes sense if you think about it. Since the fall all of mankind has been exiled from God. Why is that? Why, why, would people, why would God exile fallen humanity and cast them out of the garden? You'll remember the cherubim with the flaming sword guarding the path back to God, preventing people from approaching him. Why would that be necessary?
1: If he didn't do that, then... It-
0: that's the specific reason given. But why would that be a problem then, after the fall, but for, because of sin? Right? Sin creates an estrangement between God and His image, and so God cast them out of the garden. That's why He didn't want them to partake of the but that's what the reason given in the text, why he doesn't want them to return. But the underlying reason is their sinfulness. Our sinfulness is up the reason for our estrangement for, for, from God. And that's why we need a mediator, right? That's why we need Christ to come into this world, act the role as a mediator between an estranged, I mean, a mediator implies mediation. Mediation implies estrangement. You have a problem that needs to be resolved between two parties. And a mediator comes in. Steve does mediation. He's an attorney. He does mediation. These parties are not in agreement about things. They, are, they have differences. So they call in a mediator to mediate between these two hostile parties. Come to an agreement, a meeting of the minds. It's an analogy, but you get the idea. Um, so all humanity as a whole has been estranged from God. When it first happened, that meant everybody. Now God entered into a covenant, as our confession says, a second covenant, And he called one line of this larger human family, one family, uh, to be his people. And over the years, that came to be known as Judah and Israel. But if you think about the way the prophets are talking about in their time, God entering into a new covenant one day, whereby he will show favor again upon Israel and Judah. Because at that time, they were estranged from God as well. He would enter into, um, he would receive them back to himself again, bring them back to himself there in the land. You can see how Jewish prophets at that time, seeing as they did, all all relations with God being between himself and his covenant people, Israel and Judah. Using those kinds of terms, Israel and Judah. When in fact we would learn much later, with the coming of Christ, the arrival in him of the new covenant. Christ holds up the chalice and he says, the cup, and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant in my blood. It makes sense that when when in fact this estrangement, like Judah and Israel were exiled from God because of their sin later on, after the fall, after God had made them his covenant people, they too sinned and were exiled. So the prophets looked forward to a coming day when that exile would end. But what was actually in view was the return of all humanity, all the Gentiles who who were also estranged from God. It's just that there were these labels, Israel and Judah, being the spiritual vocabulary of the prophets was the way they understood it. There's evidence in the Old Testament that God is bringing all the Gentiles into His blessings again through Abraham's seed, who we know is Christ. Okay, keep that in mind. How does that work? The prophets are looking forward and saying Israel's going to come into Israel and Judah are going to come into God's favor again and come back to Him in the land as it works out. In time, the New Covenant brings back all of, whether you're Jew or Gentile, estranged from God. He calls himself a people, Jew or Gentile, back to himself. That's the reality of the New Covenant, that God is calling an estranged, the estranged Jew and the estranged Gentile back to himself in Christ. That's the reality that we know from our New Testament. That's why most of us are in this room worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this morning. Keep that in mind that that's the reality. We have to deal with these expressions. Israel and Judah, that's what separates dispensationalists from non-dispensationalists as they wrestle with Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Why do they use these terms, Israel and Judah? What does that mean? That's where we differ from dispensationalists. They're saying it means literal ethnic Israel. they will one day come back to the actual land and thus coming back to God and coming back into his favor. So they're holding off you know hope that sometime in the future this will happen. Sure, they've come back to the land. that's a partial fulfillment, but most of them are not believers in Jesus, so they're holding out and waiting until someday. Um, they'll come back and they'll see that as the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31. Why? Because it says Israel and Judah. We're looking at our New Testaments for covenant theologians. We're looking at our New Testaments and saying that's not how they're handling it. They're saying that the New Covenant, amongst all the other passages we've looked at, that are Old Testament prophecies, that we've looked at in this course, that are handled in the New Testament by the prophets, Applying them to the church. Now we come to the point where we're discussing the new covenant, and I think here, we have a very strong argument against our dispensationalist brothers and sisters. That when the Old Testament prophecies talk about Israel and Judah, and returning to God's favor and blessing, It's fulfilled in Christ and those attached to him. That's what we're talking about today. How does this discussion in New and Old Testament of the new covenant play into the theme of this entire class? The theme of this class was the prophets talk about returning to God's favor and blessing for Israel and Judah. The New Testament interprets and applies those promises and prophecies to the church, to Christ and his church. That's what we believe is going on in the Bible. Dispensationalists say something different. We've talked about that many times. All right, let's see where I've left off here. So boiled down to its basic facts, we can plainly see that in the New Covenant that the new covenant was to be fulfilled in the houses of Israel and Judah. You cannot deny that. You look at the Old Testament text, it says Israel and Judah, right? We saw that. That's the first fact. But we can also just as plainly see that according to the apostles the, and the writer to the epistle, of the epistle to the Hebrews, the new covenant is in fact fulfilled in Christ and those united to him by faith. Was it just a batch of Hebrews by by birth that this epistle, the epistle to the Hebrews, was written? Was it just written to a synagogue somewhere? Or was it written to believers in Jesus? If you're familiar with the letter, you're familiar with the fact that it's written to believers in Jesus of of Jewish extraction. So these are people who are in the church. Even dispensationalists will acknowledge that. These are Christians. The apostles were Jewish and Christian, so these people are no different, but there they are Christians, and this new covenant is obviously applied to Christians, like the recipients of this letter. All right, so that's the second fact. Old Testament says the new covenant is for Israel and Judah. The New Testament says the new covenant is for Christians. Second fact. So the new covenant was for the prophets intended for the houses of Israel and Judah. The new covenant is for Christ and the apostles fulfilled in those who are united to him. We are presented then with a hermeneutical fork in the road, an interpretive fork in the road. And we can deal with this either as covenant theology has or with, or or how dispensationalists uh, have. And that is, By seeing believers in Jesus Christ as those who are in God's sight spiritual Israel for which there's much corroborating evidence in the New Testament or by seeing the New Covenant as mainly for Israel according to the flesh and preserving this distinction between Jew and Gentile in God's dealings. And in actual fact I'm going to read you a quote from uh, Charles Ryrie in his book Dispensationalism. Charles Ryrie is a prominent Dispensationalist teacher, or he was. And this is from his book Dispensationalism, pages 140 to 141. Premillennial, premillennialists sometimes Dispensationalism refers to itself in that way. Premillennialists have not always dealt with questions about the New Covenant uniformly. Some Dispensationalists have taught that the church has no relation to the new covenant. I'll say that again. Some dispensationalists uh, uh, say that the church has no relation to the new covenant. Only Israel does. That's Ryrie's words. He goes on. Other dispensationalists see two new covenants two new covenants one with israel and one with the church other dispensationalists acknowledge that the church receives some of the blessings or similar blessings promised in the old testament revelation of the new covenant but not all of them and that's where the quote ends so you can see here a dispensationalism dispensationalism has been confronted by this problem that I just presented to you the two facts first fact Old Testament prophets talk about the new covenant as applying to Israel right that's the first fact second fact New Testament applies it to the church this creates a problem for dispensationalism and they break ranks with one another on how to deal with this problem of the new covenant some of them say that new covenant that Jeremiah talks about it only applies to Israel not to the church some dispensationalists say that why do they say that? because that's what Jeremiah says he says to the houses of Israel and Judah so some dispensationalists say new covenant only applies to Israel again this is Ryrie's uh, statement others see two new covenants why would they do that? Because the two facts that we saw this morning: first fact, first fact says, or first fact is, that the Old Testament prophets talk about the New Covenant as being applying to Israel. So some dispensationalists say, well, well, that's the New Covenant that applies to Israel. Second fact, the New Testament has a New Covenant too, and it applies it to the Church. So some dispensationalists say, Israel has their New Covenant. The church has its new covenant. That's one way they handle this problem. Then there's a third group of dispensationalists that say, well, there's only one new covenant, and when the New Testament applies it to the church, they're just applying some of its blessings to the church. Other blessings are still distinct for Israel alone. So you see, this has created such a problem for dispensationalism, the fact that the new covenant is applied to the church in the New Testament. Such a problem for them that they've broken ranks with one another. They're handling the problem differently. They're not unified. This is according to Charles Ryrie, one of the main American expositors or purveyors of dispensationalism while he was still alive. Before we go on, are there any comments or questions while I sip some coffee? Yes.
2: I mean, we think that in the Old Testament that they thought the prophecy was just for... Israel and Judah. But I wonder if that's exactly true because Jeremiah was prophesying at the end of Judah. You know, Israel had already, a hundred years prior, been uh, exiled into Assyria and assimilated. And then Assyria was taken over by that. So, like, they had a double assimilation. I I don't know. I mean, I don't know Bible history that well, but did they, you know, Judah, when they were finally taken to Babylon, they they still kind of, the remnant kind of remained distinct, even among, you know, the Babylonians, but I don't know that we have any history of the tribes of Israel being anything distinct, so if I was an Old Testament person hearing this prophecy, I'd be like, there is no tribe, nor the tribes of Israel. Yes, that's an important point. how do you fulfill this other than something miraculous that I can't imagine?
0: Okay, so uh, what Barth is saying is that in Israel, you had the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You remember the kingdom was broken up into two parts. After uh, after, uh, Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. Rehoboam and Jeroboam You remember the stories from the Kings and Chronicles Books in the Bible So you had your southern kingdom Which was Judah, your northern kingdom The northern kingdom set up their own uh, Place to worship up there They didn't come to Jerusalem anymore That was in Judah So they were at war half the time So um, they weren't coming down there To worship anymore They set up their own temple up there In Samaria and stuff And did their own thing And then they fell away to idolatry first So God gave them over to exile first. The Assyrians, he had the Assyrians come down. It's all in the Bible and in uh, other ancient Near Eastern literature about this stuff. The kings of Assyria came down and took Israel, the northern kingdom, away into captivity. The northern ten tribes. Who's ever heard of the expression, the lost ten tribes of Israel? You may have heard that expression. For all intents and purposes, those... Israelites have disappeared to history. Now, a century or two later, the southern kingdom fell into idolatry too, and then the Lord had the Babylonians execute his judgment on them, carried them off into exile. Jeremiah was one of the Israelites, the, the Judahites left in the land. So there's, it's different how they were broken up. By the time Jeremiah has given this prophecy and he writes it down, and we read it today, uh, the only people known as Jews are the remnant of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, which was kind of part of Judah. But uh, the rest of the tribes of Israel have vanished to history. So, like, Jews came back in large numbers or sizable, measurable numbers from Babylonian captivity back to Israel, and that's recorded in the Bible as well their return to the land but not the ten tribes of Israel, they're just kind of lost and in fact there was a difference in policy between the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire the Assyrian Empire had the policy of taking conquered people and then just breaking them up into indistinct groups and sowing them amongst the other peoples of their empire so they would lose their identity and not band together that much more efficiently against their overlords, that was Assyrian imperial policy and it works itself out in such a way. Well, it makes you ask. You know, and the people in Job, even in Jeremiah's day and generations thereafter, what's he talking about? These the, the ten tribes of Israel of the northern kingdom have been lost. They're gone. How's the Lord going to bring them back? They've been sowed, as it were, among the nations that the Assyrians, uh, you know, spread them out amongst. They lost their identity. How could they even consider themselves Jews and come back to God's blessing as a, as a people? They probably intermarried and lost all their identity. And so how is that possible? And I think it's because of this distinction between Babylonian policy of conquering people and letting them keep their identity and the Syrian policy, not letting them keep their identity, that kind of makes this return of Judah and Israel to God's favor and blessing to be more easily understood As a return to God's favor and blessing not only of the Jews, Judah, but also the nations, Israel. And I think Matthew Henry has a speculation along those lines that when the prophets are talking about Judah and Israel returning to God's favor, that Judah is a reference to the Jew, and Israel is a reference to the nations. I can't cite that, that's just from fuzzy memory. But I remember talking about it to somebody else in the OPC, uh, at that time a, another budding minister of the OPC um, at an MTI class. and He said, you know, I was thinking about this one day, and I said, hey, Matthew Henry says that, and we talked about that for five minutes. And, um, but it's something to consider. You see the idea that Judah kept its identity as Jews. They're going to return to God's favor someday, according to Jeremiah. Israel was sowed among the nations because of Assyrian captivity they lost their identity became one with the nation so to speak and they're spoken of as returning to God's favor too and so in a sense they stood for even if they're not you know genetically related to everybody in the in the church today they stood for in a sense possibly the nations uh, when God's promising Israel and Judah will return to him from exile yes
1: Uh, interesting, though, on the comments that you're making. Uh, yeah, as a lot of us have come from probably dispensational circles, coming to reform and covenant theology, one of the things that's hard to let go of is we tend to read our Old Testament and still a dispensational point of view. It's hard to let go of the nationalistic aspects of everything in the Old Testament and say, hey, they were probably also using the terms of Israel and Judah And in Hebrews to mean themselves, their spiritual identity. The way covenant theology, we look at the Old Testament and we look at Israel and Jacob and Judah and we say that's the church. So the nations can join the church at any point in time. They have to leave their ways, forsake their backgrounds, and join the church. We don't we look at that and think dispensationally, oh that means they have to start being a Jew nationalistically. Yes, that's true, but they're joining the people of God ordained in all ages. Now, they had obviously the law and other things to follow, that's true, but they're joining the identity of God's people spiritually, which I think is, I could be wrong, the Matthew Henry reference, if I remember um, But yeah, it's along those lines that we, we need to think covenantally. That when we look at the Old Testament, every reference to Israel and Judah, yes, it is a national people, but it also is a spiritual identity of those people that the nations are being asked to acknowledge and follow. So even in their return, it may not be, to, to Robert's point, all the different tribes are now able to genetically identify themselves and come back to a specific point in land. That's a dispensational but that the people spiritually who identify with Yahweh, the true God of Israel, they're coming back and identifying themselves
0: now. Excellent point, point. and we'll, we'll close with that actually. So, um, something along those lines. Thanks, thanks, John. Um, let's see. Okay, so let's go back to where we I went off uh, to uh, address Barth's uh, excellent observation, and it and it was it was to me fun to discuss because I've never discussed it uh, other than that one time with that other other guy, that other licentiate at the time um, let's go back to this point here that the dispensationalists have been confronted by this language of new covenant and they broke up, they broke ranks with one another and they, they, they're united on other, most other things but this is one thing that kind of uh, forces dispensationalists to disagree with each other uh, the discomfort provided them by the fact the second fact that the New Testament applies the New Covenant to Christians, to the church. And if you're like me, you'll find that the dispensationalist approach, breaking up, well, there's, there's two New Covenants, or, it's, or you know, this, the, the, new, the, the New Covenant only applies to Israel. You'll, you'll, you'll agree that the, new, uh, the dispensationalist approach to the uh, New Covenant is uh, somewhat incoherent. Uh, this desire to keep Israel and the church distinct Drives one to take something so fundamental and otherwise uncomplicated as the new covenant, and in fact tr- transforms it into a reef on which the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture must founder. This, you know, the thing, the matter of the new covenant is very important to us, isn't it? It's, the, it's that by which we are united to God in Christ. So, the new covenant is essential doctrine for the church to understand, it's, it's the basics. And yet, it's the New Covenant on which, I argue, dispensationalists founder. And so, something's wrong in a doctrine that forces dispensationalism to drop the ball, as it were, when it comes to something so basic as the New Covenant. Okay. So we should close this question and this course as we're winding down here um, by resorting once again to the simple object lesson of the olive tree found in Romans 11. Let's go to Romans 11. And this is connected to, to John's point. So in Romans 11, again, we talked about this probably the first, cl- first class that we took, if not the first, then the second uh, time we were together uh, in this course. And we got this olive tree here that Paul's talking about. Starting at verse 11 is where he starts using this figure of the olive tree to represent the one people of God. And this one tree is, in his handling, composed of both Jew and Gentile. So to circle back, keeping this in, line, keeping this uh, figure, Paul's figure, in mind, why does the Old Testament say that the New Covenant has reference to the houses of Israel and Judah, and the New Testament seems so plainly to apply the New Covenant to the church? It could be as simple as this. The terms Israel and Judah are to be understood as the ancient labels for God's, for God's covenant people. The only labels with which the prophets were then familiar when describing the covenant people of God, as these were the only covenant people of God at the time. It would be incoherent prophecy for them, to God, to use a lot, some other terms in relating this prophecy to Jeremiah, for instance, because they they understood God's covenant people in those terms. In other words, it is plain that the Old Testament views the New Covenant as pertaining to the houses of Israel and Judah, but it is equally plain that the New Testament sees the New Covenant as pertaining in the main to Gentiles, to the nations. But Gentiles attached by faith to God's Messiah. So my, my, my solution presents itself, I argue, presents itself rather forcefully upon us as we seek to reconcile these two facts. This solution to the problem would admittedly need some confirmation from the New Testament, which confirmation I now just refer to as corroborating evidence. The sort of corroboration, in other words, we would be looking for in the New Testament that the church is to be understand, understood as the new Israel in Christ would be some sort of indication that God sees those united to Christ as receiving Israel's inheritance or being assigned Israel's name or assigned Israel's privileges. And the New Testament is replete. It's filled with just such corroboration. And we've seen many instances of this throughout this course. I've been at pains to draw your attention to them. But truly, if we but embrace fully the obvious import of the, uh, whoops, of the following verse, all difficulties between dispensationalism and the rest of us would dematerialize. And in fact, the entire foundation, I argue, for dispensationalism as a doctrine would crumble. So let's turn to this verse together. Galatians chapter 3. We didn't have time really to read that passage again in Romans 11, but I hope you remembered it. Paul uh, likens the people of God to a single olive tree, not two olive trees in God's garden. Here's my Jewish tree and here's my church tree. It's believing Gentiles grafted onto the same exact tree as believing Jews unbelieving Jews were broken off so that these believing Jews could be grafted into the single people of God this single organic thing and that was Romans 11 and that goes to John's point that you're joining the people of God whether you do so in the Old Testament or the New Testament you're joining God's covenant people whether you do so in the Old Testament or the New Testament there were different labels used in the Old Testament dispensationalism is clinging to those labels even today when the New Testament makes it clear as I hope this course is displayed, um, that the two are one, in that they are united to Christ by the Spirit. So let's look at the, this verse that I am arguing now, that if we would just, as a church, dispensationalist or non-dispensationalist, covenant theologian or non-covenant theologian, if we would all just uh, look at this verse understand what it's saying, it's very simple, and actually believe it, then there would be no more dispensationalist conflict with covenant theology. We'd be unified on this point. And in fact, I'm arguing, of course, that we would all be covenant theologians, to be, to be truthful. Galatians 3.29. And if you are of Christ, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise meditate on that verse remember that verse whenever you're tempted to think of a distinction between the church and Israel because the church is told that if you are of Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise Promises given in the Old Testament to Abraham regarding him and his seed. Revisit this passage, understand that the seed is Christ, and yet we are the seed too if we're united to him. If you are of Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Believe it, and the argument is over. Yes, Jim.
2: I was in a dispensational science class with my dispensational friends, the Nelson's, and their And the class was studying this passage, and we read it, and the teacher asked, what well, does that mean And you know, I got picked. So I read that, and I'm no great theologian, and I didn't give it any great thought. I read that, and I says, what does it say? It says, I'm a Jew. And my dispensational friend took great offense. We used our, our scholarship for that day. He would, he, we wouldn't discuss it, but he didn't believe it
0: and that's the that's the that's the the root issue between us and dispensationalists when they look at that verse i say they don't believe what it says they're not willing to apply the plain and simple truth given to the church in that verse of course there was so much more that we visited over the last i don't know how many lessons but just that verse and jim has experienced this himself when he was in a dispensationalist church they discussed that verse he said i believe what it says i'm a jew If I am attached to Christ, if I am of Christ, I am a child of Abraham. Dispensational says, no, you're not. That's the problem. So let's close with that. Let's close with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly uh, Father, we thank you for this this word. We thank you for the the graciousness of your dealings with us through the new covenant, promised of old and fulfilled in Christ. We thank you and praise you for your glorious grace with which you have united us to this Messiah. And we thank you for making us fellow heirs with him, of you. And we ask you, Lord, to please be with us both now and forever, quicken our faith and strengthen it in this Christ. Help us to walk in newness of life. Help us to seek your glory all of our days and help us to do so now this morning as we begin to worship you in him. It is in his name that we also pray. Amen.